policy of us, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am talking to Heidi Jenanga, who is the chief clinical officer and founder and board member of WebPT, which is a Phoenix darling, raising over 50 million of venture capital dollars from really esteemed investors like Battery Ventures, Canal Partners, as well as... Warburg Pincus. Warburg Pincus. I was about to say Warby Parker, but like (laughs) (laughs) I always mix those two up. Um, And uh, Heidi, how you doing? I'm doing good. Really excited to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. Of course, of course. Um, You've been like my special um, guest. I wanted to get good at this before uh, I brought you on. So well, you definitely have the voice for it. (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Not the face for it, but I got, I got the voice for it. Um, Heidi, tell us a little bit about um, what WebPT is and your background before bringing it in, because there's a whole lot to unpack there. But I'd love to know, in essence, what does WebPT do and the genesis of, of you creating it? So WebPT is an electronic health record specifically designed for rehab therapists, which includes PT, OT, and speech We're essentially a software platform that helps run a PT practice, mainly in the outpatient sector. Uh, I am a physical therapist, so uh, essentially we started the company back at least, we launched the company in 2008, but if you think about starting it, we originally, the idea spawned in 2006 when I was a clinic director uh, of of a pretty large sports medicine practice, actually one of the largest in the country here in Tempe, Arizona. Um, and as a clinic director, you had P&L responsibilities and, you know, we were documenting everything on pen and paper, but we were also using transcription and dictation to dictate our notes that would be sent to our referring physicians. And so, um, you know, unfortunately in healthcare, top line revenues have steadily declined over the years because the majority of our revenue comes from insurance payments. Uh, and those, uh, have been the, the reimbursement for physical therapy visits has been steadily declining. And so, you know, basic economics, if your top line's going down, you gotta cut your expenses. And so we were trying to figure out how do we cut our transcription dictation. Um, there were a lot of physicians who had been transitioning into using an EMR, which was a, a essentially digital platform to do your documentation. Uh, and so we thought there had to be something out there for therapists, there really wasn't. We looked all around, it was all medical based. and so. Uh, I put my head together with my co-founder, um, who was a technologist, and we created something that originally was supposed to be for my practice only to really help me get ahead. Um, and as we started to get more success, uh, not only within my practice, um, you know, we launched the first version in about nine months, um, got good traction within the therapist in my practice, and then before we knew it, six months later, we had about 12 practices up and running using the platform here in Arizona. Um, And we kind of scratched our head and said, huh, 
you know, we did a little market research and we found that 80% of therapists were using pen and paper as well. So the, my problem that I was having was pretty ubiquitous without, within the entire industry. And so in 2008, we decided to launch the company. Interesting. Um, so I always thought that WebPT's acceleration happened, well, so were you saying that it was more trying to fight costs within as the initial pain point where did meaningful use and the government's intervention and you know making you know physicians and medical providers go into electronic how did that play into that and so a lot of times when you have success it's uh, alignment with a lot of external forces as well so that was the original thesis like it needs i need to save some money right. um reimbursements are declining like i have this expense that everybody was having and it's expensive and it's going up so why not find something to replace that uh, but in 2009, the, two, the High Tech Act uh, was passed. And so essentially, which um, speaks to your meaningful use um, uh, of language here of, um, and quote unquote, Obamacare, right? Mm -hmm. That he essentially wanted to digitize and create more access to data within all of, the, all of healthcare. And so there were incentives given to um, providers in order to adopt a digital platform, which was essentially created the explosion of electronic health records and medical records throughout healthcare. Um, however, there were some providers that were excluded from those incentives. So physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech language pathologists were not included in those incentives, meaning that if you adopted an EMR, you would get up to 20 some things, sometimes $50,000, depending on the size of your business, to offset the cost of adopting in this new technology. Um, and so in our space, in our industry, which was kind of left alone from you know the massive infiltration of new technology and, and new uh, players in the market, we were kind of left alone, which was part of, it was good and bad, right? Because we got the uh, the wave of rising tide kind of thing, where if you are sending a handwritten note to your referring physician, like where does that put you on the scale of respectability within the healthcare profession? And so there was this, um, you know, adoption rate that was happening because everybody around us was adopting, even though uh, physical therapists weren't, you know, given that financial incentive, they were still doing that. That also actually helped us as a SaaS platform. We were the very first SaaS. Um, technology, uh, electronic health record in the PT space. So it de-risked uh, from a customer standpoint that we had a 30 day out. Um, it was a month to month sort of, you know, SaaS payment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there were a lot of things that we did right in the beginning to really help speed up that adoption and, and give people a way to dip into an area that they weren't really comfortable with, um, but also then started to feel value. That's awesome. And so it was super lightweight, right? You could just deploy it super easily. There was no incentive. When did Obamacare or Meaningful Use have like the stick? I mean, I know they incented people and then it, eventually it became a penalty, right? Not to have these EHRs. Did that ever come into the PT? World? Not really a penalty, but the incentives went away. And that was actually only a few years ago. Oh, okay. So it, it, the adoption rate, I mean, is it's definitely the bell curve now. When we first started, as I mentioned, 80% of therapists were using pen and paper to document. Today, that's flipped on its head where it's closer to 85 to 90% of therapists are using some sort of digital platform. Mm -hmm. And that's in a span of, you know, 12, 14 years. So wow. we, timing was everything for us. Um, you know, we launched the company in 2008. This happens in 2009. And that's when the hockey stick really started to grow. 
And so you built it for yourself. All of a sudden, through word of mouth, 12 other clinics are using this, this platform. When did you decide that you wanted to really make a run at building a software company? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, as a, as a provider, I had really no technology experience. And so um, it was a fast and furious learning curve for me. Um, and, um, you know, when we decided to, well, there's a couple things. One, originally the practice that I was running was part of a large corporation. And our initial thesis was we're going to build this, we're going to deploy it out to, you know, a large percentage of the actual organizations within this corporation. And for sure, they're going to want to buy us or adopt us as their technology, right? That was the first, the sort of initial thesis. And um, we had that opportunity in uh, late 2008 um, to uh, pitch to the CIO and the, and the CTO and, C and CEO. Um, the COO loved us. Um, therapists lo have always loved us. They still, it's, it's our still highest scoring NPS um, provider that we have. Um, and, but the CIO couldn't get over the fact that we were SaaS. He was very much a, you know, on-prem sort of person who had been there for a long time. And yeah, this just, it's new. And, you know, anyway, we were a new company. It was really hard for, for a large corporation to, to make that uh, risky decision. Um, and so we had to step back from our sort of original, you know, path that we originally had thought we were going to go on. Uh, and we did a little more market research and we've, we figured out what the industry really looked like. Uh, in terms of potential buyers. And at this point in time, 65% uh, of the market was SMB. Mm. Maybe 15%, 20% was this sort of middle market of you know, 10 to 50 practices. And then you had you know, the large uh, enterprise groups of three to 500 clinics, which was you know, who I was originally employed by. Uh, that was a super small percentage of the market. And so when we took a step back, we understood what we had built, we understood uh, you know, SaaS and who was the potential buyer. Um, that actually was really the, the point in time when we said, uh, we, and that was the least saturated part of the market actually in EMR. Like the saturated market, the 20% that had adopted EMR were all in this enterprise space, mm -hmm. right? And so it was a wide open field. Mm -hmm. And that really, I think, was the, the pivotal point when we said, wow, we have some opportunity here. Um, that's what we went in 2010. We had started there. We had really started gaining some traction. Um, but, you know, we were a startup. Every month it was deciding, well, what's the most important thing do we spend our money on? Is it a new server? Is it a new support rep? Is it, you know, sales and marketing? Like, what are we spending our money on this month? And, you know, that's when we uh, decided to, uh, you know, actually go do this and, and entered the pitch with... Uh, Really, at the time, it was ATIF, or mm -hmm. and Canal Partners stepped up to the plate. Got it. And then, so you started off as an SMB play. Yep. And I'm just curious about this now that I have a pen in it because I'm ADD and I'll go all over the place. If, uh, <laughs> if I don't write this stuff down, is how did that affect you as the market started to consolidate? Yeah, it was a huge decision. Um, I mean, obviously, we're now 2023 will be 15 years that we've since launch, which is, I have to pinch myself sometimes, like it's, it's been a flash. Um, but we've continued to grow um, uh, as far as our platform, you know, 
adding new sizes of members and, and our sweet spot is, has always been SMB and then we definitely moved up into that middle market. Um, as in 2018, 2017, 2018, we really made the decision that we felt the consolidation starting to happen. Um, and we made the decision that we really needed to be in that enterprise space as well. And so, um, you know, we made some important uh, improvements to the platform. Um, we went out and, you know, you know, talked to these types of customers to say, hey, what are we missing that you need? And then we lassoed our first enterprise company, right? And um, with both, you know, organizations understanding, hey, this is you're going to be our first. You're going to we're going to learn from you. You're going to uh, help us sort of move up. Um, and uh, you know, from there, here we are. We have I don't know six out of the top ten largest organizations in the country today using some portion of our platform. There was also some changes, and when I say some portions, that's a key point of it, um, is that we also changed our strategy. We are an all-in-one platform, but we've modularized our, our system in which you don't have to be using every single component of the platform. So there's some pieces that, that might be able to integrate with the current platform you're on. You know, our, our goal is to get a, a foot in the door, right? And as, as things um, start to evolve and platforms improve or, you know, they want to make changes, now we are going to be in the conversation of perhaps that next all-in-one piece that they might want to deploy. So when you were, uh, when you said you felt the market consolidating, did you feel that in the terms of churn that, you know, you were getting pushed out because, you know, the bigger enterprise solution was in, was backing the, the company that's acquiring the smaller guys? A little bit, but not much. Um, what we really actually saw, and this was, you know, with the help of Battery Ventures at the time, was private equity had moved in. So there was a ton of money that was getting deployed into these mid-sized businesses. Um, and so we knew, you know, once private equity comes in, growth is really the goal. And so, um, and we also saw the writing on the wall with other, you know, niche markets, private primary care, for example, and, you know, other areas of healthcare that were, had already moved in that direction. I mean, PT seems to be sort of lower on the totem pole. So you see trends and other things happening in other areas of healthcare before it actually affects us in our sort of small niche, mm -hmm. our, you know, $6 billion niche. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was a little bit of writing on the wall. We, we saw some of the churn, but not, it wasn't to the point where we we're like panicking, you know right. what I mean? Like we, we kind of saw it in the tea leaves already happening. So we knew we had to make that move. Do you feel it's easier to get product market fit um, with SMBs than enterprise? Um, I mean, having lived it, I would say yes. Mm -hmm. um, and also having lived it now in terms of what uh, the um, percentage of time and energy and effort it's taking us as an organization to put into enterprise. Um, you know, every enterprise organization thinks that they have their secret sauce and, you know, has, uh, you know, their certain way of doing things. Uh, and so there's a lot of um, individual uh customized um, product that has to be sort of built or um, at least put into play, right? Uh, that you don't have to do at SMB. SMB has, you know, will take what you've got on the truck 
and they will figure out how to use it. As a matter of fact, mo- a lot of times because they are early earlier adopters, they will be uh, able to adopt it, use it, and then you know be your champions for for others in in the in the market to to adopt it as is. Yeah, and there's like there's more. The single stack works a lot easier with the with SMB. Yeah, and there's more acceleration with SMB. You can see repeatability. You can actually position yourself as a thought leader as opposed to enterprise, where like they're saying, okay, well, you know, they have a little bit more pricing power, and they can you know help move the roadmap a little bit or create customizations for what they're building. Yes and no. So I will say that especially in a small niche, all these CEOs know each other, mm. and all of them talk to each other. And so um, if one deploys something, they all want to understand why and what, and it is like dominoes after that. Mm. Um, and so I, I do see it both ways. Like I think um, SMB sometimes can be a little bit more scrutinizing because uh, they are early adopters, right? So something new that comes in the market or maybe is a little bit lower price, they have a little bit, you have a little bit more volatility and then willing, being willing to try something else or add, you know add this new thing. Uh, and so I don't know. It's a balance. We've we've seen kind of both sides of it, um, but you know, SMB has been where our hearts hearts uh, kind of started, and I mean, personally, still lives. I <laughs> know <laughs> exactly. Um, so you've gone through uh, several different iterations of the company from a capital stack perspective. You've had minority venture. You've had majority buyout, and then you've had you know, big, bigger private equity coming in and your strategy has been both organic and inorganic. So can you talk a little bit about when that started to transition from more of an organic to an inorganic buying products and services to augment and increase your TAM? Well, uh, as soon as we took our, uh, the venture round in 2014, um, the balance started to shift. Uh, and I, you know, at that point we were about a $20 million business. Um, we were the market leader. Um, and you know, the, the push to grow, um, once you take venture money in is obviously a lot higher. Um, and so we, at that point, I would say we probably had a 50, 50 balance of now thinking about more strategically M&A while we were still continuing to build, you know, add on new products um, to our platform organically. Um, but, you know, the definitely towards the end, um, you know, 2017, 2018, as we were, um, you know, there were more opportunities to be found in the market. Um, and we started to really look at the time to build versus acquire integrate, like what was the, the quicker time to market, uh, those type, sort of factors kind of pushed us into doing some more M&A. And honestly, was part of the you know thesis of you know moving into private equity, just because there were opportunities for M&A that you know, Battery simply wasn't going to be able to quote unquote afford. Um, that that was really going to be the next stage of the business. And today, I would say it's probably closer to 70-30 in terms of our growth opportunities is really going to be more through M&A than it is through um, uh, organic build. So when you say afford, were you referring to check size or valuation or both? Uh, Mainly check size. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, 
at that point, it's we were really we're really even today we're still pushing for market share. Sure. And so, you know, there's now consolidation has also happened in the technology world, right? So there's only four or five different players that are really have, you know, market share. And so, you know, at this point you have the opportunity being the dominant one to say, hey, there's a couple other, you know, folks that are doing good things, um, but, you know, additive to, to what we're doing, um, that would give us a significant jump in, in market share very, very quickly. And so how do you, as a, an executive team, go through the build versus buy decision? Well, um, it, it all goes into your, to your strategy and budgeting. Um, what are your goals for growth each, each, each year, right? Because traditionally it's always a three to five year plan that you kind of have a trajectory on. Um, it's also uh, opportunity. So if things all of a sudden come up in a market, you have to say, okay, well, let's take a step back. And maybe this wasn't our strategy this year. That was strategy two years from now. But hey, it's it's an opportunity yeah, now. It's here. It's ready. Right. It's ready to go. Um, and so, uh, and then the biggest thing is to time to market. And what is the, what is the time to, how long is it going to take us to build it? How much is it going to cost to build it versus how much is it going to cost to buy? How fast can we get to revenue? Um, with integrating this platform into ours or even selling it as a standalone. Could we stand it, stand it up as a standalone? Yeah, and so as a bigger company, is how hard is that to do these days? I would imagine being a big company, like saying, okay, we're gonna do a standalone product. I mean, you kind of have to have a startup mindset, right? Well, that's the, that's the nice thing about buying these bigger opportunities that they already have, you know, a position in the market. Right. Um, a lot of times what we would really want to do is continue to have teams that would stick with us. And, you know, it would be known in the beginning that this is our strategy that we want you to continue to, to run as is. You're just going to be under the WebPT umbrella. Um, doesn't always work. Um, you know, the people have a lot of pride in their previous company sure. and they don't know the uncertainty of the future sometimes can, can be, um, uh, disheartening. So, um, yeah, it's just that we have, we, as a, as our strategy really is about integration. So we haven't really done too many things where we really said, Hey, you're going to stand alone and not integrate with us, that we're just buying you as an opportunity, we, that hasn't really been our strategy. It's really been pointed in terms of, hey, this is really important to our overall strategy of our platform. This is a piece that's missing. This is an opportunity to plug that in, but it's, it's part of our all-in-one uh, although you may be modular, all-in-one integrated strategy, platform. Which is, which is much harder to do than yes. the portfolio strategy. Yeah. Because there you have to cross sell or, you know, you, the thesis is you cross sell yeah. and you create synergy. And, um, I've just find that a lot of companies, they, they, you know, when they get rolled into private equity, they, they've got that vision or at least the, the private equity firm tells them that's what their vision is. And they end up being just a hold co. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, that's never been our strategy. Warburg's never sort of given us that directive. Um, and it's very much, again, about building a great company um, and serving our customers and what we call our members from, from the get-go of, of um, providing them the tools necessary to, to run their business better. And how does culture, you know, how do you, how do you manage culture? Because that's a big piece of your, your position as you've grown and scaled from being a three-person company to being how many employees now? 
Uh, just shy of 850. 850 employees. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you think about culture and scaling culture? Yeah, it's been super top of mind right now, especially for multiple reasons. One, coming out of COVID, uh, pre-COVID, we were 100% in-house, all together, all the time kind right. of culture and sent everybody home. And so now we are digital first and have employees in 36 states and scattered all over. Um, as well as making a huge acquisition uh, just uh, in 2020. So, um, you know, that's it, integrating, you know, 200 more folks into into your business is, is also not an easy play. So, um, you know, first and foremost, I'm, I'm super proud that the culture has still, um, you know, kept the essence in the foundation that was built back in 2008. Um, and obviously it evolves over time, but, you know, we sat down in 2010 and wrote these core values with the 40 people that were in our company at the time of what does it mean to be part of WPT? Who do we want in this business? You know, what do we stand for? Um, and that foundation is still rock solid within the business. Um, and that's in part to, it's always something we lead with first. Every conversation that we've had with a potential investor, that's the first thing we talk about. They have to buy into that culture. Every CEO we've had, we're on our, our I'm on the third CEO in our business. Um, or fourth, really, if you count us as founders first. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the conversation that we have and those values, like each one of those individuals and entities has to live up to our values. And so um, to me, that's the essence of the culture. Um, uh, and you know, that people first mentality for us is, is what we've always led with. Um, and that's to me how it's, it's continued to maintain its sustainability throughout all these iterations of the business over time. So what is it like to bring in a new CEO for an already, you know, successful company and integrating new leadership because you've done it a couple times? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a tough first six months of just, you know, having them be a sponge and soak up all the information, transfer of, of relationships. Um, you know, then there's the uh, executive team that how that, that relationship between the, the existing executive team, you know, every time we've brought in a new CEO, there's been a changeover in the executive team. So not only are you onboarding a new CEO, it's you're onboarding a new potential multiple people in your executive team. Um, and I mean, it's tough, right? Um, you have some evolution of the culture during that time. Um, uh, and um, it's definitely a transition for the business. Everybody's kind of on edge, like, oh no, what's gonna change? You know, what does this mean for me? You know, as far as the employees go. And, um, and so, I mean, it's part of the natural progression. I, I, will, I will just say how proud I am of every transition that we've made that again, we led with that culture first and um, you know, we've been successful with our, our selection because we took the time, really took the time to make sure it was gonna be the right fit for what we needed in the business moving forward. I'm not entirely sure, and this is just purely a speculation that I made just now, right, <laughs> <laughs> in my head, is that if WebPT would have been a successful transitioning from different capital stacks mm-hmm. with different CEOs if you weren't there. 
Yeah, I, I get that a lot. And um, I do, you know, I guess I do. I need to to toot my horn a little bit with still having a founder in the business. There's, it's for sure. It, I think it would be a completely different business if I was in Stonehill. Yeah. yeah, there'd be no, there. I mean, it would just be, I mean, it's just by nature. Yeah. Right. You, but you have the DNA. You're kind of like the WebPT spirit animal <laughs> that looms through the halls. It's true. Um, and I don't think there's very many companies that have, you know, transitioned through all of these different, you know, iterations of funding rounds that, you know, the founder still stays. Um, but, you know, I, I've, you know, completely enjoyed, like I'm still enjoying, I'm still having fun coming to work every day. Um, and uh, still, you know, you get, you, it's, it's an ebb and flow of right now, I'm very much sucked back into the business because of uh, the transition. We just hired a new CEO at the end of uh, 2020, or, I'm sorry, 2021. Um, and so, you know, there's this whole new, new iteration of people and excitement and, you know, transition of knowledge and relationships, like I was mentioning before. So, um, yeah, it's exciting times um, and trying to now visualize and, and put together the strategy of what is this next five years? What does this next chapter look like in, in the business? So, yeah, as a typical founder, do you, I mean, as a founder, do you feel like you would resonate with a typical founder persona that needs to jump into a new thing all the time and, you know, search for new things? It doesn't sound like it. Or is it the fact that they allow you to do so many different things within WebPT that it keeps your interest? It's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I don't think that I'm the typical entrepreneur. I don't know that I, um, have that. Like, I, I think there's a lot of people that really love certain stages of the business and having been really the first time going through this, like I am so excited every, every stage I've learned so much more and sure. new, and that's just my innate personality of, of a learner. Um, you mentioned spirit animal, but my spirit animal is really, I think is like a chameleon. Like I'm really, I, I can totally jump into this segment of the business and find something. And, and to the credit that you, you mentioned is like the board, our, our funding partners, as well as our CEO, like all of our previous CEOs have all had founders in their previous business. Yeah. So they understood that was a piece that, you know, each, each, um, time that we kind of, you know, innately looked for. I don't know if it was 100% on purpose, but somehow that sort of um, came up as one of the priorities um, as we as we started through the recruiting process. And so, um, you know, they've given me a lot of latitude. They respect the fact that I'm there. They look for, you know, our weekly sessions together to learn something new, historical, put something into perspective, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Relevancy is always important for founders, and I've always felt relevant and important to the business, you know, to date. When I don't feel that way anymore, I don't think I'll be there much. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, exactly. I mean, yeah, I have to keep you interested. Yeah, the other piece to, to I would say, David, is really important, too, is, you know, we, we started this early on. It was, it was a lesson that I learned really, really early as a founder is, you know, initially you're doing everything and you have your hands in everything, right, from strategy to payroll to, you know, paying bills, like accounts payable, like everything you have your fingers in. And, you know, for me over time, it was handing those off to people that were smarter than me that I really didn't like these things. Like I've kept the pieces that I love, uh, like being sort of the, the face, the company, the, the thought leader, um, 
Uh, and all of those those pieces that I really, really love, I'm still doing today. Mm-hmm. But I've given away everything else. Yeah. That at the end of the day, someone is better at doing that than me. And I don't know that there's enough of that out there in founders sometimes. They feel like that control piece is gets lost. Um, and yeah, I've been able to let go of a lot of those things without, you know, feeling like I'm losing control. So you're kind of like always in a flow state. Yeah. I like it. I like it. My spirit animal is a tick. I just bury myself into people and then they just like, I'm a part of them. Like you're a blood sucker. I'm a blood sucker. (laughs) It's like, you know, you never really planned to like me, Heidi, but I just kept bothering you until you did. That's not true at all. That's not true. I think you're selling yourself short. Thank you. Thank you. So being a visionary, being the thought leader, being out in the healthcare community, like how does, how does, and I'm sure being a big part of the product and product roadmap, how has the role of your technology interfaced with physical therapy and how has physical therapy changed and like within the healthcare system and how is that enabled with technology and how do you think about the next five, 10 years? That's a big question, but I am super proud to say that, you know, we have been the catalyst for change in, in terms of how therapists now think about documentation and, you know, technology in their practice, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, You know, we have close to over 50%, close to 60% market share, if you think about just the uh, electronic medical record piece, who are using our platform. You know, we penetrated early into uh, physical therapy schools in which they got a, uh, you know, a a slimmed down version of our platform so that therapists, student therapists could learn how to document on an electronic health record so that they would know how to do that when they got out into the real world, which, you know, they weren't doing that in schools. And so their brand recognition um, is there uh, within the industry. Um, And so we've definitely been the leader in that. our whole platform from the beginning has been all about embracing the community and, and of our niche, of our industry. Um, and when we think about thought leader, it's all about education as well. I mean, I think back to some of our very first uh, marketing uh, pitches, and it was all about teaching people about the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> right? I know you laugh, but I mean, that's only 10 years ago. It's right. really hard to believe. And healthcare, you know, tends to be a little bit farther behind when it comes to technology adoption. And so, um, you know, we have we have this massive following that whether you're using our platform or not using our platform, we're still useful to you, right? We're st- that, again, that brand recognition w- served us so well um, from the beginning and, and now continues. Um, when I think about the next five to 10 years, you know, there's a big transitioning that's happened uh, over post-COVID with the use of telehealth uh, virtual visits, um, you know, which again is a huge shock to, to PT where, you know, normally, you know, everybody thinks about PT and you go in, you get your hand, a therapist gets their hands on you each and every mm-hmm. visit. Um, but it spawned a lot of research and, you know, really the adherence to home exercise program and activities outside of the clinic is really what um, helps to project the best outcomes. And so there's a lot of technology development and usage now of these tel- of uh, virtual visits, um, communication between visits, things like that, that um, are really gonna be, I believe, the, the hybrid version of, of the future of PT um, in rehab therapy in general. Yeah, because generally speaking, when I've been in physical therapy and 
I've been into a room and then they help you and they show you the exercises and they just do rounds. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's really just the act of doing the exercise and yeah. being accountable to the exercise. So why couldn't you do that on telehealth? Yeah. And then you think about wearables and, and data, right. you know, um, aggregation of you, you have all these things and activities that you're doing. Like we should be able to aggregate all of that into a manner in which we can, uh, help prescribe, you know, the better exercise regime that you should be doing on a daily basis, or at least to help your injury. And then, you know, for us too, it's really pushing, there's a big stat that we talk about a lot, David, and that is, um, that 90% of patients who have a diagnosis that therapists, physical therapists could be helping are not getting to us. And so Hmm. PT practices are continuing to fight over this sort of 10%. And we, you know, we think we've moved the needle a couple of percentage points. The Medicare 10%? No, in general, this is all a population of the U.S. Oh, okay, got it. Um, and so we've moved the needle a couple of percentage points, but, you know, one of our big sort of BHAGs that we've had behind the scenes is really to move that by two to five, more than, let's move that 5%, right? Mm-hmm. And the volume of patients that would be come, able to come into the practices would be exponential. Like, actually, if we moved it 5%, today's practices would not be able to handle it. Right. But that's okay. Like we want more people to, to, to feel, be able to, to um, benefit from the value of what a physical therapist can do. Um, and so it's elevating the brand of PT at the same time as, as web PT. Awesome. And so 12 years later, you've made your bones, you're making some investments now. What do you think about today's market in the earlier stage? Well, it's, uh, it's tight. you know um you know those of us i mean we did our deal right at the end of 2019 it couldn't couldn't have timed it better Mm -hmm. um but you know it's 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 getting back to good business as far as i'm concerned of building continuing to build a great business and not thinking about that next round of funding it's more about you know serving your your customers and um, deploying great software and um, all the things that make a great business that, you know, the, the best businesses are going to continue to get funded. Correct. So, um, you know, the market as a whole is, is, is obviously tight and volatile and not sure what's really going to happen tomorrow with interest rates going up. And it's, it's, it's hurting, it's hurting PT practices. Um, oh, because, sure. You know, um, People are not willing. I mean, gas prices obviously going down, but you know, just getting co-pays. to co-pays, right. getting to practices, inflation, all of those things are, are, you know, people are thinking twice about man, twenty-five dollar copay. Like, do I really need that? This is where you know some of the telehealth visits and other things could telehealth really be. Telehealth has to come in. Has to come in. Yeah, it's a nut. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to drive anywhere. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I, I could have. They have to go that direction. Yep. Is software harder or easier to build? Today? Today. For us? Yeah. Um, and any, anybody. I mean, if, I, if you're a seed stage startup today, is yeah. it easier or harder to build software than it was five or 10 years ago? I think it's harder. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess to build, I think it's really that... Um, Customers are more discerning mm. uh, in terms of what they're looking for. The bar has been set so much higher okay. uh, for what people are looking for in terms of ease of use, price, you know, all the things that makes you want to choose a platform. Um, you know, it's got to do multiple things now, not just be single threaded. 
and connected. Yeah, the worst um, enemy of perfect is good, right? Yeah. Like it's like the dirty ashtray. No one notices a clean ashtray, but if there's one little like you know cigarette butt in an ashtray, it is yeah. it does not look good. But I will say, you know, even in our, um, you know, we have we're definitely the the market leader, um, but. You know, there are definitely new entrants into the market that are, you know, making some headway. And I think competition is awesome. And it's uh, important to continue to drive us to make sure we're, you know, managing all of our highest levels of customer service, all the things that we, you know, set out to do. Uh, it just keeps you on your toes as, as, yeah, as the market leader, which I think is important. What's the biggest threat to WebPT today? Well, as we talk about it, I mean, I, I think it's it's our own, it's internal. Um, mm. As we make a transition, as we make this transition with a new CEO and enterprise or, or um, executive team, and you know, it's for us, it's balancing what we call the barbell. So we've done, we've we've gone up to enterprise, and we also have the SMB, which are very two different markets, as you know, um, and so it's really making sure that we have the right strategy to um, satisfy all of our customers, which are very different. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's probably the biggest threat right now because we're in this transition phase of what does the next five years look like? And so getting that right mm -hmm. uh, is important. Um, but I'd also say just externally, um, you know, there's there's the virtual PT platforms out there that are coming on strong that have gotten a crap load of money, like Hinge Health, Hinge Health, as an example. Um, which I thought is, that was a dating app. <laughs> it should be a dating app. <laughs> nope, it's a virtual um, rehab platform. So telehealth, essentially, um, they've they've penetrated the employer base. Okay. Uh, so they're going after big employers to say that they can, you know, provide um, healthcare services for significantly less um, than it, what it would cost to have a network of practices and whatnot. Got so. It. so it's a digital health. Yeah. They centralized it, um, burning tons of money. They don't yes. care about Correct. customer acquisition. As long as it's smart, they're going to the employers too, because yes. they're not in bed with the healthcare systems. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But the good news is, is they're not for you, is that, you know, they're, um, that funding um, circuit really went downhill, the digital health. <laughs> it, it did. That, that, that went really hot to really cold really quick. It did. Uh, it's kind of the, the, the post um, the, the post pandemic sort of fallout. Mm -hmm. For sure. And also they're just, you know, they're not showing the outcomes and, you know, they weren't really all, all, they were employing maybe one or two therapists and the rest were not actually therapists that were actually doing a lot of the work. So there's a lot of things that, you know, you just got to weather the storm sometimes and see what happens. But at the same time, you know, these excess, uh, these external um, threats, you just got to keep an eye on. Is there a PT shortage, just a shortage of everything? Well, if we keep pushing the envelope on this 90%, then yeah, um, there's definitely a shortage. I, right now, um, you know, there were a lot of unfortunate fallout of, of the pandemic for our industry where there are a lot of people that left the industry. Mm -hmm. um, we have never had as many actual physical, licensed physical therapists apply for positions within our business than we ever had in the last two years. Really? We employ more therapists now too, which is awesome. Right. But at the same time, that means that they're not doing clinical care anymore. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's been a huge push into this non-clinical PT um, uh, sector within the industry, which is pulling people out of clinical care, um, which what's is not great. What's non-clinical PT? 
So non-clinical is like working at an EMR, right? Oh, you're using, yeah, you're just not using your clinical, which is what you go to PT school for, right? But now you're using your knowledge and, you know, the expertise to do other things, which I think is amazing. I think it's great for the profession as a whole. We just got to keep up with getting people into clinical care as well who love doing clinical care. Sure. Thank you so much, Heidi, for coming down. Everybody, thank you for tuning in for the Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you like it, please share, write a review, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.